Hi, this is Asia Freeman, Artistic Director of Bunnell Street Art Center. Welcome to Inspiration in Isolation, a weekly conversation among Alaska artists exploring how we're weathering isolation during the COVID-19 pandemic and what strategies we're using to make this a time of creative productivity. Talking with me today are Annette Bellamy and Molly Lou Freeman. Annette has commercially fished for many years, long lining for halibut, and seining and gill netting for salmon. These years of fishing have inspired her artistic concepts, food gathering, handling lines, buoys, and nets as repeated forms and activities that inspire her sculptures. Annette's education has come from workshops, residencies, university courses, and mentorships. She has exhibited nationally and has work in the collections of the Anchorage Museum, Alaska State Museum, Pratt Museum, and the Fuller Craft Museum. Annette lives in Halibut Cove. Molly Lou grew up in Homer and spent years working its more or less remote waters from Cook Inlet to Shalikoff Strait and Prince William Sound. She took her BA in English and American Literature and Creative Writing Honors from Brown and her MFA from Iowa Writers Workshop. She lives in France, 30 minutes by train from Paris, where she writes, translates, and teaches. And she has just completed her first novel. With over 45 publications in American journals, her awards include an American <clears throat> Academy of American Poets Prize and grants from the French National Literary Endowment. I'd like to begin by asking each of you to talk about what you're currently working on in the studio. Would you like to begin, Annette? Right now I'm working on a piece called The Angle of Repose. And Angle of Repose is the steepest angle at which a sloping surf surface formed of particular loose material is stable. So to me, it's, um, it's a slide, it's a pile of rocks. And if you take a couple of those rocks out, it will keep sliding. It's, it's this kind of a, it's a very precarious balance that life has. And I think it's certainly, I had this, I was working on this a few months, but to me, this is relevant to what we're living through right now. And with the sculptural work I'm doing, I also every day try to kind of incorporate some functional pottery because that is very grounding. And, it, and also I need to fill the kiln to fire the sculptural work as well. So I have um, a few other things that I'm, the studio has tables that are piled up with ideas. So. I'm just floating in the studio right now. Wonderful. And Molly Lou, what have you been working on? Um, I've just um, completed my first novel and um, am about uh, a third way through a second novel. And then um, parallel to that, um, I work as a professional translator and have um, a work of translation forthcoming um, at the end of the year for the 100th anniversary from the um, extraordinary American poet Barbara Guest. Um, the first novel is a work of literary fiction in a sentence. It recounts the shouts and laughters of girls in a cabin dreaming their freedom. It's not set in today's world, rather in the 80s and 90s of my generation. 
Um, it's absolutely about isolation and self-definition and breaking free. It's a coming of age story. Um, I think women so long we see in literature have been um, relegated to the home, to sitting, putting, and hiding out. And um, this work of fiction is um, in direct rebellion of that well-held historical norm. And certainly I think Alaska is a place that people would love to dream about or be, considering the rooms that we find ourselves currently shuttered in. Um, I can talk a little bit more about um, the concerns and questions I embark upon in this first novel. Um, uh, a plot line and, and problems of the protagonist um, deal with um, imposed choice and the outfall of isolation. Um, what happens if you dream differently than your loved ones, if you want something that they don't even believe in? Um, um, what about unbidden encounters changing the uh, life path of a person forever? Um, and thus, how do we go out and get what we want? Um, I'm just drawing from some notes here since I'm uh, a word person. Um, I'm also interested in contrasting the work of the sea, um, a passion um, in love of wilderness and landscape with its inherent dangers. What happens if situations suddenly become lethal? Um, finally, and also at the heart of this novel, which on the one hand is the story of a mariner and on the other, um, that of a horse person, um, is a reflection about reading Herman Melville and the story of the great white whale, um, Moby Dick, um, how we appropriate and retell stories in families and how these weave ourselves into um, a family imagination. So it's about reading Melville, not as the literary scholar that I was trained to be, but rather as a woman writer trained on the sea and as an Alaskan mariner. Mm. Yeah, you, you and Annette both have a tremendous amount of um, love for the sea and you're also horse people. It's an interesting kind of sub-theme in this conversation. Um, Annette, describe a bit about your kind of working environment, your home studio and the community where you live. I'd, I'd like to, um, to invite each of you to, to talk about how your context shapes or informs your, your art. Well, I've actually in the past few weeks, I've talked to a lot of potters that make comment on how their life isn't really that much different, the pace of their life. They get up in the morning, go out and work in pots, and you know most potters cook a lot on their own, and um, yeah, live live a fairly simple life. But in Halibut Cove, um, we live right on the dock, so I'm first of all influenced by a changing scene in front of the house. The tides in and out; it'll go on big tides completely dry. So that that is a scene that constantly keeps you in a different pace and the light hitting the water is always different. So um, it's very, very quiet here. I mean, it's, it's silent here. I got back from traveling to California and around the lower 48. I came back last spring and I called my neighbor, Diana Conway. I said, Diana, it's just totally silent. And she said, Annette, it's been that way all winter. And um, I've done a lot of traveling. Um, in the past eight years, I've been traveling in the winters. So um, my pattern right now is back to how I always lived and it's very it's simplifying my life and um, in many ways but I get up in the morning 
Um, I have my studio, it's just uh, two minutes next to the house. And I have a, there's the warehouse where I can work. I carved wood there all last uh, spring and summer. And um, we have another shop area up at the tack barn where I can work in iron with a forge and an uh, anvil. So I have a lot of resources um, for craft and to make. I have a lot of space, which is a real wonderful, it's rich. Um, freezer full of fish. Um, walking to the post office, there's not a road here. People use four wheelers, but I walk. Occasionally a skiff ride to get packages at the post office. So it's very, so it's, it's quite wonderful for me because I'm, um, I like the, the solitude and the quiet is, is nurturing for creative work. I think that that's probably sure. it up. Yeah. And, and Molly Lou, what's your kind of home work community environment like? Describe that for us and how that shapes your work. Um, so I live um, in a tiny village, about 35 minutes train ride from Paris where I also work um, in normal conditions quite often for teaching and translation. Um, this is um, the Fontainebleau Forest of the famous Barbizon School of Painters, um, where um, Theodore Rousseau drew um, meadows of sheep and Corbet um, painted his famous painting of the gleaners gathering wheat. Um, this is a landscape in which I live. Um, and um, I do have uh, a workroom. I'm not sitting in it at present, but rather in the salon, as we say, the living room in our cottage because the internet connection is much better here. Um, and um, like many writers, whether I'm on the deck of a boat or in a plane or a train or in my kitchen, um, my workspace is anywhere I happen to be sitting down. I don't need a lot of materials. Um, although um, I'm generally surrounded by books and um, my community happens to be um, in this time of connectedness um, and um, forever. Um, people who I speak with regularly um, in the writing scene with whom I'm collaborating professionally, whether that be in New York or Paris, elsewhere in France, um, in Los Angeles, in Montreal, where my friends happen to be, or even in Alaska. So um, I happen to live in an extremely bucolic setting and um, am um, generally outdoors um, as an outdoors type of gal all the time, especially um, with horses, but not particularly in this moment in time. So um, that's, that's the environment in, in which I work. And let's flow right into the, the question of, of um, isolation and how that, how that shapes your practice. Is it, is it important to you? And it, and and, and how is it um, perhaps um, provocation for your work in any sense? I work best in isolation for my own creative flow. When I've done residencies, I found it difficult to um, actually produce inspired from that direct experience. I seem to need time to digest and I do work in more retrospectively um, considering experiences. 
So solitude is important. And I do, I have just finished a collaboration that I did with six Alaska artists. And that was a wonderful experience for me because it was a connection creatively working with a group of people. And then we just hung the piece in Anchorage the 1st of March and to see the final piece, and it was all done independently, but coming together. That was a little different for me, and I really enjoyed that, uh, reaching out and, and always being connected with an arts community. But to work in my studio, I, I find I need to have uh, solitude and in my lifestyle. Um, lots of time to read and lots of outdoor time. And yep, that seems how I function best. How about you, Molly Lou? Um, well, um, it, just building on a conversation that we had earlier, uh, Asian and that, um, I should say that I'm no stranger to isolation. Uh, I was joking with our father in a recent conversation that isolation, well, we know all about it as Alaskans, um, holding up or hiding out or hunkering down. It's just like working on a boat. So um, here I am in France and my particular pra practice as a writer um, with um, this year, um, a great gift of time is work alone. Um, and then um, exchanging with people from a distance, um, in this case, very regularly with my agent um, or um, with readers um, or collaborators collaborators online when we're doing a translation um, collaboration, then we talk regularly or sometimes um, I have that privilege of being together because we're doing a project um, in a residency um, or for a reading. But um, I really love that time alone um, to read and to think and to balance um, a very intellectual um, creative exercise with physical exercise. And um, that's a real shift for me um, in this particular moment in time because, um, well, the French Federation has shuttered stables here. So um, I'm not going outside um, besides the um, half mile perimeter of my home. Um, and um, I can talk in, in more detail about how um, that particularly impacts me because it has impacted our lifestyle in every way. Would you like me to talk a little bit more about sure. that to flow into yeah. that subject? Yeah. yeah, flowing right into like how, you know, the pandemic is, is kind of shaping because you've spoken about like this bucolic environment and now you are really shuttered. Yeah, so, um, so what's your version? Um, here's mine. Um, <laughs> France happens to be um, outside of Asia um, under some of the most strict um, lockdown um, laws um, that one could imagine in the Western world. So um, somewhat like martial law and um, with the executive authority, um, much like the War Powers Act, um, we have shifted to a complete autocracy. Um, in the past couple weeks. And so our president has um, extraordinary power and um, we're left to wonder when in fact will we go back to um, uh, organizational government and a way of living that we signed up for here. Labor laws have changed. Um, 
things are, are looking really different than they were a few weeks ago. So um, we don't go out and um, I can't like an Alaskan head out into the forest and walk around with my dog or hop on my horse. Um, I walk in, in a perimeter of a half a mile of the house and have a little daily exercise scooting along village trails, um, along property lines, um, always trying to find a new pattern. Did I see the fox? Um, today I was stopped by the police um, and asked to present my papers. And of course, and I was, I was in every right to, to walk, although it was somewhat disheartening. And although we have a garden and that's a blessing and I am gardening a lot, um, it's very different. The atmosphere um, is, is radically different. Um, I notice how um, people like statues stand silent and immobile in their garden thinking or um, watch from their windows, wondering how long. So you can hear, you can hear a rooster crowing about a mile away. That's a lot more silence than ever, huh? Yeah, you can hear um, a dog barking across the village. It's extraordinarily silent. Mm. Um, so cleaner skies, um, you know, deeper sounds, extraordinarily beautiful spring. Um, if one could imagine, you know, a France where there's um, no plane traffic, our airports are basically shut down. Um, and in the context of the pandemic, which um, doesn't affect my writing practice, but definitely has made me entirely um, pragmatic, um, the only plane traffic are drones trying, you know, flying overhead, reminding us to go home or um, hele um, helicopters medevacking the sick because we're under such a massive um, tidal wave of fathomless suffering here, but um, just like anywhere, it's coming your way if it's not there already. Um, our hospitals are so saturated that we're um, shipping the ill by train convoys to less um, hard hit regions, imagining them. I'm at the epicenter in France, you know, in a region that although very different in its landscape, is much like a New York City. Um, so um, shipping the ill to um, Germany, Luxembourg, or Switzerland. It's, it's very grave, but um, I'm not catastrophizing and saying what's going on. I'm just saying that it's very real. And so um, in order to um, forge a practice out of that space, um, it takes a radical presence of mind, and I, I just feel really grateful to um, my agent and the deadlines that I have to three weeks to get um, um, the final version of, of the first novel and the pragmatism to approach this work um, in a literary market where um, probably we'll pitch the second novel at the same time, just because... Um, we're just watching to see how things move, you know? People never stop reading. Um, but um, I suppose my, my take on things just happens to be from the fact that um, 
you know, we maybe we've been in lockdown a little bit longer than than some of you um, in the United States or Alaska. And um, as an artist, I think um, one's emotions, um, given the fact that I'm always attuned to really wanting to tap into human experience, is especially heightened at this time. Although I'm not necessarily writing about it in in the first or second piece. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Boy, we we aren't feeling it yet. We see the news, Mary Lou, but we're not. I don't think we're feeling it yet as you are, the reality of it. Um, I can still walk on the island, but we're staying away from people. Um, I miss seeing people. We're almost three weeks in Halibut Cove now without going to Homer. And I've seen people six feet apart when you walk down the island to the post office, but um, it's different. But I will say, it's on my mind all the time. It's a new backdrop that's on my, in my conscience, what's going on in the world that's unparalleled in, in our lifetimes. And so I find I have to, I, I focus on going out and trying to not listen to the news when I'm in the studio. And I actually listened to a couple operas last week. <laughs> but to lift myself into a different space. I work hard at that. Um, and you said how silent it was so emotionally. I thought about The Silent Spring by Rachel Carr. <laughs> it's just uh, so devastating. Um, I usually don't, um, I usually don't react to, in my work, I usually don't react specifically to political issues, but there's always underlying main themes that evolve. And so right now I'm reading into this um, angle of repose in a lot of different ways, because I think one couple rocks come out, coming out of that would just make it start tumbling again. And, and that's what's happening. There's a lack of control, which I, I think that in life, there's always a lack of control. Change is a constant, but um, this is frightening how it separates people and people in one piece I just finished doing in the collaborative work which was with actually it was with Alaska a six Alaska native artists and it was making comment on the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower voyage so what I had to do something about the genocide and and colonization um, uh, resulting um, issues on indigenous people so my it wasn't my story in some ways to tell but I wanted to draw out it's all of our stories, I take that back. But I wanted to draw out the stories of Alaska native artists along with my story. But the story, I came diverging on this story because it was, I carved a cedar boat that was lined with little bowls from smaller to larger to smaller, like a vertebrae down the center of the bowl, uh, boat form rather. And there was clay from uh, Le Bourne, France, 800 years of wood-fired history. I went there for a visit and I came home with a lump of clay. That was wood-fired in Homer, um, at least a woods kiln. But then there was pieces of uh, pots of clay from Homer's spit. So there's, so my point being that I was trying to make a comment on hundreds and thousands of years, there's been a connection of people, even when there wasn't travel available on different continents with these beautiful storage vessels and, you know, drinking cups. 
So we continue now in this, in this coronavirus time that we're living in, I think there's a connection becoming clear that's global connection. And it's also becoming clear that the poor and women and children are being impacted more than the wealthy, um, you know, that can closet themselves and afford food and all that. There's a lot of injustices going on that are repeating themselves. But I think globally, we need to, it's time to stand together. And I think that nobody's in the end immune to this. So that's brought out a lot of thoughts that connect to the thought I've been thinking of in, in, in the injustice of situations as well. Um, I think, oh, one other thing I will say, I said earlier in my lifestyle right now, I've simplified, but I'm even going back to making my own sprouts. <laughs> and Marvin's trying to fish. They're a little low on fish, but there's some things that we can do that are kind of uh, maybe maybe after this is all over, hopefully there's an end in sight at some time in the next year, I hope, but maybe all of us will, all of us will have gardens, most of us do, but we'll start being more attentive to our food sources and all sorts of changes that I think are healthy to make. We're so connected to different sources that may, perhaps uh, we don't need to be. And, um, and then certain ways of shopping, I'm going to discontinue totally. Um, I won't use any names. I think everybody knows what I'm talking about. Uh, the big online shopping that I just think there's a lot of things going on that aren't right that we can make a change right now considering things. Um, so those are a, kind of a tumbling of thoughts that I've gotten lately because the coronavirus and I just trying to stay focused uh, during the day and taking quiet walks and exploring the beach at low tide that revives me seeing what the tide brought in you know, there's always a different tide line on the beach and um, yeah so I'll carry on to the next question Asia well you both will appreciate this um, Jake and I were taking a a walk which we do several times a day and we passed our neighbors um the cabanas and he he fishes he sings out in prince william sound and he was describing his 40 square foot garden that he has up on the bridge of his boat <laughs> you know and i thought that's absolutely fantastic you know i i hadn't really i've heard of people having a few you know like uh, a tote you know that they're growing on the boat but he's really dedicated to this you know he he even gets pea vines um, growing up near the stack and tasting a little bit like diesel. But it, it, his um, commitment to it, his ingenuity, I never would have guessed. And I thought, isn't that fantastic? Where's Marvin it's fishing? Like, oh, go ahead, Mel. Oh, I just wanted to respond to that um, ingenuity that's very Alaskan um, and just say, thank God. Um, Certainly, it's been um, such a comfort to be out in my garden and perhaps even a little bit more industriously than um, I might have been otherwise and definitely decided that it was time to get chickens again and um, got out the old sourdough baking um, recipe, um, much like um, that which we used to eat on Yule Kiltro's homestead. And we've just been... Um, living off of it. Um, it's what my father calls survival rations from a boat, you know, heavy as a diving brick. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's been really comforting to 
to just to to dip into um, those kinds of resources and definitely think about um, shopping and eating of the kind that um, I was used to for um, going out to spend a whole summer um, on the water or um, into the bush where everything was counted, rationed, weighed, and um, um, prepared for the long term. And I, I find it really, um, really comforting and um, makes me feel um, definitely quite like an Alaskan. And I'm happy to share that, that type of thinking um, with my son. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Molly, is your because your son is he's a bilingual. Yeah, he is. Um, if you talk to him, you'd you'd probably think he sounds just like an American or Alaskan kid. If you talk to him in English, and if you talk to him in French, he'd um, do that switch hitting thing and sound just like French. And he picked up a lot of Spanish when we uh, lived in Mexico as well. So um, definitely. Uh, Global citizens is one of our hats, and we wear it pretty well. Wonderful. Speaking of kids, Annette, you were saying that in the Cove, there's a few families that have kind of come over there to hunker down with maybe a bit more freedom, and you're seeing some kids, Zatillion kids, and who's what? What's what, what's that like? The chi- the the childhood environment over there right now. Well, Greg and Weatherly Bates have their oyster mussel farm that was 100 percent out of business about two weeks ago. So their kids are over here and they're walking the beach. I hear them laughing and shouting across here when they're you know, exploring the other shore. But I'll show you the outer shore here, just across from us, where our boat is. Nobody's ever there, but they live up in the bite. That I'll point up in the bite there is where their, their home is. And they are still harvesting their mussels and oysters. So they row around, they kayak around and they dropped off a bag of oysters and mussels for us the other day because they said nobody's going to go hungry here so we had gosh it was three days worth of wonderful seafood and um there's another couple that have three young kids that are homeschooling in a log cabin with no running water and um right now we have a power outage so the generator is going hea is doing work on the power line so every so they are out of power as well i think they're going to borrow a generator from us today and then there's eight young college students um, that are friends of, with the two, um, Clem, Vincent Tillian's sons, came back with uh, friends and they're all been hunkered in on their self-quarantine for 14 days, which I think is very difficult at that age. I walked by them on the floats to the post office and it's about a six foot wide float. So I said, you guys need to walk on water here. <laughs> but. Every, you know, there's other um, families that I think are coming over. Um, the neighbor came over just for a few days with their son to homeschool. But it's wonderful when I take my walk and I hear the kids sliding down the hill and all the laughter. I love that. They're just, you know, enjoying themselves outside. There's still snow here, Mary Lou, but we're a long ways off from our gardening yet. But, um, but that joyful sound when I hear kids' voices and exploring, I like that. It's, you know, good life. And those are things that you miss when you're in isolation. Usually I'm in Homer at least once a week. And I go to Homer, I have lunch with my friends and go to the gallery or, you know, it's just, uh, there is some, some kind of socializing connection, which is actually very important. Yeah, I should add, oh, yeah. oh, I just wanted to add that um, 
we have a long-standing family tradition of FaceTiming with my father at dinner time, or it's gotten a little bit more um, silly and spontaneous and immediate because we do a, a kind of FaceTime happy hour with our neighbors. We can't visit them. We we're not allowed to even walk, you know, six feet uh, apart from people. I mean, maybe you cross them on the, on the street by chance, but, um, so the humor is definitely there. Sometimes we shout out across our gardens, you know. <laughs> but Roman is, your son is such a, um, you know, inquisitive and introspective and insightful little guy who, who is generally really light hearted. And I'm just wondering how is he faring in all of this isolation? He's not able to go into a wild space and shout and romp like normal what's his life like as a little French well, boy shuddered in yeah um so he's going into third week of online school you know it was sort of scramble scram go online just like everybody um wherever they are and he happens to be an only child and um highly highly sociable and so um these weeks of not seeing any other children, although he does FaceTime with friends, I guess like grownups now, um, or his cousins, you know, he makes a little ritual of it. Um, um, he's extraordinary, extraordinarily resilient, and we're all a bunch of readers. So, um, you know, he's reading and going to school and playing outside. And um, I find his metaphors really um, heartening. The first week, he, um, he was walking around with a little um, lock and key for lockdown all week <laughs> and then um, made a little dividing line across our, our garden for, um, you know, I guess, marking out territory. And, um, and there was another one. Um, oh, well, he got a compass from Grandpa for his birthday. So he's been spending hours on this compass and using it whenever we go out walking. And um, we've had some orienteering lessons. So, um, you know, he, he, he's doing fine, but um, of course this isn't normal, but it's not normal anywhere. So there you go. Are you at all? Go ahead. His imagination must inspire you. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, he reads my writing over my shoulder. He asks me about the characters all the time, you know, and um, he knows about all, <laughs> um, all the stories. You know, he's, he's, you know, in France, we say, you know, the, the, the walls have ears or um, just like Ma used to say in the little house books, you know. So he's definitely tuned in. He knows exactly what's going on pol politically and otherwise, you know, he doesn't miss a beat, but most kids don't anyway. Yeah, he's got a, he's got a good imagination for sure. Are you, you know, I know he's a sort of a precocious young man and and politically kind of interested as well given the autocracy you describe in France right now and his interest in in literature are you sharing with him at all like some historical moments that resemble this one, you know, are you is he at all aware of Anne Frank or any, any of the kind of weird resonance with the past? Yeah, um, that's something I'd like to talk about. In fact, he did read um, a kind of zine or um, um, uh, what's, the, what's the word called? Um, 
you know, a visual novel version, a graphic, of novel. Anne, a graphic novel version of Anne Frank this year. And, um, and so I think he, he's, he's aware of that. And I noticed that he picked up a very um, sort of sophisticated uh, adult book, um, Zola, the other day in France. And I, and, and, and I thought that, that he, he was a famous uh, French writer. And I thought that was kind of funny. Um, but um, just a wink at him trying to, to get it. But um, interestingly, before we went into lockdown, Everybody was out in the forest just wandering around. We, we hike all the time, and, and I had never seen so many people out there. And I think people were probably thinking, oh, we can just escape into the woods, you know? Like, um, this is the best place to be because we're um, one of the biggest natural forests um, surrounding our village. And in fact, it's, it's a kind of forest in which there's many villages and towns within it. Um, famous hunting grounds for Napoleons and the, and, and the Napoleons and other Kings and, you know, boar barreling through here and Fox and, and deer and whatnot. But anyway, um, to answer your point or refer to it, Asia, there was a feeling that these woods are full of phantoms, you know, where people hid and ran through in times of war. You, you feel that in moments like this and certainly, um, without um, trying to draw some sort of facile parallel, you know, we have known times like this um, in the not too distant um, past in, in Europe. So there's a, a certain kind of solemnity, you know, it's kind of solemn around here, you know, it's, it's very different than um, an American notion of civil liberties or, you know, just go out and, uh, and, uh, spend some time outside and be reasonable about it. You know, French people are very undisciplined. They want to kiss each other and drink together and hang out and stuff. And so there's this, uh, you know, this, this much more strict measure, but you measures that were taken and um, people are following it, but you can feel that this, this history, you know, um, past histories are around us, you know, people in my, in my extended family through marriage, you know, hid people here during the war, you know, in their homes during the war, it's all real, you know, it's not, it's not made up, you know, it's not just the fiction of Anne Frank, which I happen to teach um, uh, as a literary person and literature teacher, you know, it's in the stories of, of people and their families. And so it has a weird kind of resonance now, you know, that certainly gives one food for thought, whether that, you know, that be the fact that we're rationing, um, we are rationing food here, um, not just in our house, I mean, the stores are. Um, but I wanted to just respond to something else, just while time allows that, something really beautiful that Annette was saying. I think that um, given real global stress, you know, that people feeling more vulnerable, I think our stories have shifted, you know. I think what people, um, want to hear and want to share. And it's really, this is a wonderful opportunity. I want to thank you, Asia, for it. But I think that just this notion of, um, you know, bearing witness and um, the great leveler, as we hear say, um, around us, um, it's really present. And um, the, the awareness, I think, um, as a reader, as a writer, um, is really refreshing. I think I've got my son walking right in here. Hi, Roman. <laughs> <laughs> Getting ready Roman. for bedtime. <laughs> I want to just invite our listeners to um, 
ask any questions they like. And I, um, you're, you're welcome to unmute your mic and, and, um, and, you know, speak up if you like. It's wonderful to see that we have, you know, about 35 people who've joined us from all over Alaska and outside. Asia, can I just ask Mary Lou a question? Molly Lou. Mary Lou. Molly Lou. Gosh. Um, I know your name, Molly Lou. Um, I, I enjoyed reading the poetry that you had written. And one line I have great curiosity about. It was in the poem, Sometimes I Achieve Surrender. And the line is, I am no longer afraid of the passage of time. And that in itself, the poem's quite wonderful. That line had me curious. How did you overcome your fear of the passage of time? That was a poem that was written um, a little while ago. Um, you want to sit down with me, son? Um, it, was, it had to do with the fact of um, becoming a mom, actually, and really seeing time really differently. Um, not as um, just one person on my own or, or uh, a married woman or someone as, or as, you know, a person in the workaday world, but someone who was responsible and um, for the life of, you know, members of my family and um, maybe just getting older and so what? And, you know, I guess that's part of it, Annette. Yeah. Okay. I was curious. I was curious if it was, maybe something to, something to do with your years living in France in different, um, culturally, a different sense of time as well. Perhaps, you know, I think that um, there, is, there, there are differences in terms of just maybe, um, you know, based upon my reflection of how we situate ourselves up um, to history. Um, can you say goodnight, Avi? I need to stay on this, on this conversation. Um, and, uh, also just being in, surrounded by incredible history, you know, um, we call it old stone in France, you know, um, castles and, and um, domains. One of the places where I train as a horsewoman is um, a private castle and um, it's immense lands that was from one of the mistresses of Henry the 14th and it's a great woodland and the barns have the most incredible beamwork um, and it's all old, old stone and um, you know walls um, three feet high in places where um, you know where, where some of the horses are pastured it, it's amazing you know to, to, li to live in that context it definitely um, you know, you feel it in a, in, in a way around us. Or I was just mentioning to you in, a, in another conversation, there's a house across the street that's 350 years old. That's but Annette, the, you opposite. too are kind of, I'm sorry. That's the opposite of Alaska, isn't it? The New Except New it's not the opposite of how you live. I mean, you live, Annette, in a house that's a, maybe 100 and something years old and, and you're really ensconced in a, in a deliberate, examination of time through your work conceptually when you think about pieces especially moving mountains more recently but also tools time-worn tools that you've revisited sculpturally what it what's what's that about time for you well it's just in um 
the tools were just the tools that were the old beautiful wooden crafted mending tools for nets and maybe your father had them on your boat on his boat but they looked ancient and they are probably similar to tools that were used hundreds of years ago but the fact that some things continue on the hook i did long lines of installation of hooks because the circle hook is thousands of years old things that we continue to use every day we still catch a fish with a hook and line so that in my sense is uh, similar to my ideas about the bowls that we all use so those kind of things fascinate me there's a pattern of of um of use that continues and sometimes i think that those things that we're, we become so accustomed to become invisible so when i did kitchen tools it was i've actually found some kitchen utensils buried in a cache when we were moose hunting years ago up in Testaminas, they've probably been there for, you know, since the 30s, there were some outfitters that went, had a camp there. Evidently, I've learned from history. But um, here you have a fork and a knife and a spoon all rusted out, but it's in the wilderness, out of context. So I'm looking at those objects differently than I would just having dinner at night. But it's important to look at everything we use as an extension of our the tools we use are an extension of our own self um, and how we use them. Language is another tool that interests me. So I'm thinking, Molly Lou, how you're so, oh, you, you, your mind has the richness of all the languages, which I'm envious of. I'm just single language and not that great as, at that. So, <laughs> but to be able to consider the use of words and how they can paint pictures and describe emotions and Another question I have that I was going to ask Molly Lou is about how she, perhaps because you're so fluent in French and English and you have Spanish too, um, how you might use those words to describe from different languages, different emotions and to be the struggle to maybe to find I, the words in a different language that, that are so much better, maybe a French word is so much better than an English word and how to substitute those words must be difficult. Well, um, people say that you take on somewhat of a different personality depending upon the language that you happen to be speaking, much less the context that um, you know, you're expressing yourself in. And, and um, so I have a, a real affection for Spanish and French for those reasons. And, and um, the sunniness and warmth of Spanish, the, the poetry uh, of French and um, I think there are some things that can't be translated and, uh, and, and things that certainly can be um, translated. It doesn't take a translation to understand what oh la 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 means. It just means, you know, oh la 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 la. You know, anybody can figure that out. But in the, in the books that I'm writing, um, specifically in dialogue in both of the novels, um, the second half of, of the first novel takes place in France. And so, um, I did something that I just felt comfortable with as a translator. There's English and French, and I, and I put them side by side so that the English reader can understand what these expressions mean in France, but I wanted to um, transport the reader into that um, linguistic experience and that cultural experience of the way we say things and um, the suggestiveness of that, and I, I do that in, in both novels. Mm. Um, I, I had a, a different question for Annette, which was just, did you do research um, for the 
um, Mayflower exhibition um, pieces and how, how, how did you go back in time? Since I, I, I do research for um, uh, the work that... Um, research going on for pretty much the, I was invited June the year before and we went on the research that following spring it was delayed from the fall, which I think was good. And so it was the most, the most research I've ever done for an exhibit, basically. And, and, it, and I continue um, because it seems as if you start following a path in your life. And this has been a, then I was recently invited to go to Savunga for a two week residency working with the schools, the 200 kids in the schools, the community, and then the teachers in the weekend. And so I continued reading more along the same lines but different specifically about St. Lawrence Island. So it just seems as if, of course, living in Alaska, but um, the impacts that come from a European voyage 400 years ago and have, you know, um, traveled and impacted Alaska, everything's connected and everything that you, you research. So that was, it's been a wonderful, it's been a wonderful uh, opportunity being a part of this exhibit. Um, you, you both had a question from um, Christina Whiting, and that is, um, in isolation, how are your senses um, affected or impacted? How do you find yourself occupying your senses at this time? Um, I'll try to answer that. Let me just ask my son to tune out a little bit on that background noise and his French singing. It's really loud for me. Roman, that's going into the recording, honey. Um, yeah, I think my, my, sentence, my senses are especially heightened. I suggested that at the beginning of the conversation just because um, while we, we just have such, um, you know, extraordinary silence. And so sound is different and colors seem really different to me. I'm, I'm not a painter, but I'm, I'm from a family of a bunch of them. So visually, spring seems especially rich and um, something um, wonderful happened the other evening. We have a, a little tradition in France where at eight o'clock we cheer out for um, first responders and frontline workers. And I noticed that the owl that I hear um, often in the evenings just tuned in and chimed in at the same time <laughs> as part of the conversation. It's amazing. We just have a few yeah, minutes left. I think, um... Go ahead, Annette. I feel similar to Molly Lou as far as the isolation right now. Everything becomes, when I take a walk and I even look at a tree, it's just comforting because the tree is still growing the same as it did a month ago. It's going to continue on. So there's this strength in nature that I'm finding pretty powerful. Um, I want to hear the title of the novel though. <laughs> the, the, the first novel's title is Jump, as in um, jump in and jump ship and jump at it and go for it. Cool. going to look for that. And yeah. Oh, oh, I wanted to say something. There was, there was actually um, a little wink to um, several boats um, 
of the Homer fleet that marched, marked my imagination as, as a mariner. So um, actually the arch cape is even mentioned in it, but um, not uh, Annette and Marvin's um, boat that I knew as um, growing up drift fishing in the inlet. Um, not, as, not as an actual character, but just boats are mentioned at one point. That, was happens to, that, that happens to be a coincidence in it. <laughs> that was a boat that we fished for 15 years, just the two of us. So it was my learning how to fish episode. So another quote that I loved of yours, I have to just say this because it's pretty wonderful and a lot of us knew your mother. So it was just, it was in um, metaphors, metaphor. My metaphors, metaphor. I did as my mama said. Just keep my big brown eyes wide open. <laughs> That's wonderful. She, she did say that. And, um, and uh, the, the novel is a fiction and um, isn't our family story. Maybe I will write that one day, but did um, very much influence my imagination. So the fact of keeping um, eyes open is definitely an abiding um, metaphor in my own life as a writer and, and certainly worked its way into the, into the first book. So yeah, you got it, Annette. <laughs> <laughs> oh. You know, and I said how I work in, in um, I don't find residencies as really, I, I work more inspired from residencies perhaps a few years later from that experience. I'm thinking the same thing might be true of this experience I'm, we're going through right now. It's, it's, it's overwhelming, and I think that I'm going to be considering this for a long time, and how it's going to influence my work will be, I think, seen in retrospect, because I, for most of us, I think this is a turning point in how we are going to be viewing um, our interactions and travel and all sorts of things. So, and um, the way we live. Um, yeah, th thank you for that, Annette. I, I wanted to respond to a question by, I'm just noticing the time and I noticed that Gail Baker asked a question. She was asking whether if we feel disorientation in regard to our work at this time. Um, and um, I, I just wanna, express because I feel that because we're healthy and we have a home and we have food to eat, um, that my work is definitely one of my greatest blessings. Um, fiction is um, a kind of long haul, um, long term creative project and artists, I think writers are project driven um, people, um, aren't we? And so for, for me, it's been um, an extraordinary source of retreat, you know, or comfort. I mean, to be able to go back to something that, you know, in my case, it's hundreds of pages of work, um, years um, in the making, a lot of research. So it's like home and um, just going to a piece of it and um, rewriting something or doing a synopsis or writing a pitch is for me, it feels really comforting. I have to say, however, that um, it's difficult to have the same kind of, um, you know, disciplined focus when, um, you know, the ambient noise, not necessarily real noise, but mental noise is, is really different at this point in time. I'd like to add one other thing because I'm just reading as you did uh, the questions and Ann Kaiser's uh, comments on sharing uh, supplies and food. And whatever happens this summer, I think 
Marvin and I do plan to salmon fish and for people that don't want to get in a crowd dip netting or whatever, however they usually get their salmon, we'll do uh, local sales for people at, in Homer Harbor. So um, if anything, we'll do that. I don't know how the canneries are going to be operating or whatever, but we'll get salmon for people. Mm. I'm glad to hear that. That's wonderful. It's been so wonderful speaking with both of you today. Um, I apologize if there was an interruption in the single. I briefly lost power for a moment, but um, <laughs> we'll, we'll patch this um, talk back together and it will be available online at, at benellarts.org and as part of our ongoing podcast. I want to thank you both so much for joining me and all those who um, tuned in and to invite you to return next Thursday when we'll be speaking with Yupik visual artist, Amber Webb, who lives in Dillingham, and Yupik dancer and storyteller, Emily Johnson, who actually introduced me to Amber. Emily um, was raised in Soldotna and she lives in New York City. So she'll be talking about her, they'll both be talking about their work in the contexts of um, COVID-19. Thank you so much. Yeah, see you all very soon i hope yeah thank you asia thank you Thanks, asia. thank you annette thank you martin molly and paris. paris i love you thanks so much thank you asia annette molly lou thanks petra bye-bye everybody thank you all of it's wonderful all your faces Wonderful to hear you. Thank you. Thank you. Good to see you.